I'm going to invite Scott to come and give us our word. Because of the work that I do, I sometimes have to give huge amounts of time to reading about and watching and researching things that I could easily go my entire life never knowing anything about. Feel my pain. Uh, A few weeks ago, my co-host of the radio show that I present each week had this idea that he really wanted us to do a program about the number of music megastars who were coming out and trying to give people a window onto their personal struggles, their failings, their failures, the agonies of professional life, uh, just how difficult it is being constantly in the public eye. He thought that it was kind of interesting that people are coming out and telling these stories about how difficult it is being just that famous, but not doing it to close friends and associates but disclosing some of their deep secrets and inner struggles to millions and millions of people on mass streaming platforms. So the two people that my co-host had in mind were Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. So I spent hours feel my pain. A couple weeks ago, watching Justin Bieber's Seasons series on YouTube and Taylor Swift's Miss Americana film on Netflix in preparation for this radio show we needed to do. To say that these are hours that I would desperately like back is an understatement. (laughs) I did it, though. I'm obedient. There was a moment, however, just to show you that maybe all things aren't completely worthless. There was a moment in Taylor Swift's film that I'll confess has stuck with me ever since seeing it. So if you know anything about Taylor Swift, and I really hope you don't know very much, she's been a child prodigy, a megastar from the time that she was 15, 16, when she exploded onto the global stage as a kind of cutesy country music singer. And then slowly but surely, she's morphed from being that frizzy-haired, guitar-strumming, sequin-dress-wearing singer into being a brand in and of herself, a global music machine, unrivaled by any other group or any other singer in the world. She was confessing, though, that ever since she first made it big, every two years, as the next album is supposed to come out, as the next world tour is supposed to kick off, every two years, she has to dramatically reinvent herself. She has to offer her fans something pretty different from what they had last time, just so that no one thinks she's just doing the same old thing. But not so different, so that people think, my goodness, this is nothing like the music that I used to like. It has to be just different enough that people want to buy the new product, but not too different that people feel out of loyalty to the old product that they don't like the new product. So every two years, she has to become something different, seriously different, radically different maybe, but not too different just in case it turns her fans off. It's this constant process of massive reinvention so that she's gone from cutesy country music singer to global pop diva to dominatrix 
to revenge singer. So, so it's this constant series of changing and shifting and then offering this new product called Taylor Swift to her millions and millions of fans. Each new album needs to be better than the last. The sales of each new album have to be bigger than the last. Otherwise, she's a failure. The effect that this process of constant reinvention is having on her is pretty obvious. It was obvious to people before they watched the documentary. Uh, and it's even more obvious after. She struggles chronically and has for years with anorexia nervosa. She goes through a constant process of torment over constantly living by and on the approval, the applause of other people. No offense to teenage girls, but her global fan base are teenage girls. Can you imagine living life with them as your master? So she's going through this constant ordeal, and you have to ask yourself at some stage, why on earth would you go through something like that? Why would you willingly put yourself through that kind of ordeal, not just of success, but global success, not just keeping your fans, but always trying to keep those fickle fans happy? Why would you do that? And then at one point of the film, she says the answer is very simple. She's pegged her entire life, her whole sense of identity, her whole sense of who she is. She's pegged that on the applause of the people who love her. She loses that. She loses everything. How different, though, is that sentiment, that way of being in the world that's modeled by someone like Taylor Swift. How different is that from what the Apostle Paul says? I have become all things to all people so that by any means I might win some. Couldn't we say exactly that about Taylor Swift, that with each new album, With each new tour, she's becoming all things to all people so that she might win her fans. And we might say immediately, well, there's a bit of a difference, isn't there, between trying to get people to buy your albums and bringing the love of Jesus Christ to people. Of course there's a difference, but we tend to have some not very nice words about people that we feel change themselves depending on what company they're in. People who act one way when they're in one group of people and act a very different way when they're in another group of people. We call people like that chameleons. We say that they are inauthentic. We say that they're insincere. We say that they don't really believe what it is they're saying. We say that they don't really own the way that it is they're acting. We might even call such people hypocrites. The way they are on the surface is not the way they are underneath. We like people, or at least we say we like people, who really stick by who they say they are. The people who have just been the same year in, year out, no matter what. The people who say what they think, no matter who they're with, no matter what company they're in. The people who are exactly the same in front of prime ministers and princes and paupers. We like people like that. We say we like people like that, who stick by their guns no matter what. 
So how are we supposed to come to grips with what it is that Paul is here saying? I've become all things to all people so that by by any means I might save some. What's all bound up with what Paul says at the beginning of the reading from 1 Corinthians 9, which in, in some ways is a bit more confusing than what Paul says at the end. He says, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. In many ways, Paul is saying exactly the same thing there at the beginning as he is saying at the end. I've become all things to all people so that I might save some. Though I am free with respect to all, I've become a slave with respect to all. What does it mean when Paul says he's become a slave to all? What's the freedom that he claims to be able to do that? Well, what we're dealing with here is what Paul calls at several points in the letter to the Corinthians, the freedom of being an apostle. The freedom of being an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? He didn't study for a degree. He didn't get a particular imprimatur or a seal of recognition from some authorization body. Nobody has said, here is authority, here is authorization, go out and act in my name. That's the sort of thing that, say, an an ambassador would do. An ambassador acts with the king's authority, with the king's imprimatur. No, Paul says, I didn't do any of these things. I don't operate on the basis of human authority. Nobody has given me the authority, the, the authorization to do what it is I do. Instead, he says, I am free because it is Christ who has commissioned me. The only person who judges me, the only person to whom I'm responsible, is Christ himself. This is what it means to be an apostle. So Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Whatever it means to be free, it goes back to the fact that Paul has been commissioned into the world by Christ Jesus himself. So he's bound by no human being. He's been authorized by no human authority. So much so that he even says a little bit earlier in the same letter, if you think badly of me, it's a very small thing for me to be judged by you. The only one's approval that he wants is Christ Jesus himself. The only recognition he needs is recognition from Christ himself. The only authorization he requires is the authorization of Christ himself. That's what it means to be an apostle. He has one master. I don't know about you, but this doesn't sit with me then. How can Paul then say, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care how you judge me. I don't need your approval, much less I need any human being's authorization. How can you then go from saying that to saying, nonetheless, I have made myself a slave to all. Listen to the list of people that Paul is saying he's accommodating himself to. To the Jews, he said, I became 
as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, he's not introducing a second group of people here. He's simply explaining what he means by this. To those under the law, that's what it means to be a Jew, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. When with Jews, Paul is very, very careful about purity measures, about forms of social distancing, (laughs) about the food that he eats, about the observances of times and days, so as to cause no offense whatsoever to those who themselves follow those same dietary rules, spacing rules, contact rules, ritual rules about times and days. Whoever he's with, if they are under the law, he will place his own life under that same law so as to be as close as possible to the people that he's with. So that's the Jews, those under the law. To those outside the law, namely to Gentiles, to those who do not observe the Jewish law, I became as one outside the law, though notice in the same way that he said before, though though I myself am not under the law, here he says, though I am not free from God's law, but instead I am under Christ's law. So for those outside the law, he says, I remain under Christ's law so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak so that I might win the weak. The group of people Paul seems to have in mind here are the people that Paul referred to one chapter previous. These are people who, though they have themselves become Christians, they remain really concerned when people continue to, say, purchase food from temples to idols. People who don't want to continue eating food that's been offered up to idols knowing that that food contaminates or corrupts them. Paul says in the previous chapter, take care that your liberty doesn't offend the weak. He's not a demeaning description. Paul is saying those people who continue to be offended by the presence of idols, who continue to be offended by the presence of food offered to idols, Paul is saying don't let your robustness offend the people around you. So then Paul, after listing all these groups, I became a Jew, namely those under the law. To those outside the law, I became like one outside the law. To those weak Christians, I accommodate myself to those weak Christians so that I won't, offer, uh, won't eat food that's been offered to idols. I've become all things to all these people so that by any means I might save some. And Paul says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in the gospel's blessing. This is the strange thing about what Paul is describing here. What it means to be free. What it means to live by Christ's authority. What it means to live in the knowledge that Christ has chosen you and that Christ has authorized you to speak God's good news in the world. What that means isn't that I'm immune from the concerns of other people. 
What it means is not that I don't have to be sensitive or display acute sensitivity to the way that other people think and speak and feel and live. Instead, Paul says, what it means to be a slave to Christ's law is that I am even more sensitive to the way that other people are, the way that other people live. Being a slave to Christ means I am all the more attuned to the needs, to the concerns, to the lives of others. Again, how is this not like Taylor Swift trying to change herself so that she becomes more attuned, more sensitive to the desires and the wants of her fans? Let me put this another way. If you live your life always at the mercy of what other people think, what other people feel, the way that other people live their life, if you live your life always trying to be attuned and sensitive to what other people think, what other people feel, what other people want, isn't that kind of like just being blown around, buffeted on all sides by all of these external forces? Doesn't that mean you lose something fundamental about yourself? Doesn't that mean that you are always a slave to other people's weaknesses, other people's whims, other people's fickleness, other people's agenda? Paul says exactly the opposite. Far from the life of discipleship, of being enslaved to Christ, far from that being a life of passivity, Paul says this is what self-control is all about. It's in this context that Paul says athletes exercise self-control in all things. They don't control themselves, sorry, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, the wreath being the reward that athletes would get in ancient games. But we, an imperishable prize. So Paul says, I'm not running aimlessly, buffeted all around, always trying to divert paths. I'm not boxing at shadows in the air. What do people want now? What do people want now? What do people want now? Instead, Paul says, I punish my body. I'm always at work on myself to enslave it so that after pro proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. What is it that Paul is having to throw off in order to run the good race? What is it that Paul is having to discipline himself to do in order to run well? What does it mean for him to strike or to punish his body, to bring his body under a degree of slavery? He says, I punish my body to enslave it. What does it mean? What's he trying to enslave his body against? What's he fighting against here? In the end, what Paul is trying to throw off, what Paul is at war against, 
what Paul is trying to shed and leave behind so that he can run his race, run his race well is his own sense of self. This sounds very strange to us. We see someone like Taylor Swift, who seems to have no inner life apart from the life that other people give to her. And we see something like that, and we think that could not possibly be the right way to live. But then you realize that what she lives with and lives in constantly is such an overwhelming sense of what people think of her. It's not that she forgets herself and becomes hyper-conscious of her fans. It's that she never forgets herself because she lives by the applause of others. What Paul is here saying is that once you no longer seek to live by the applause of others, once you no longer live with yourself being the first and foremost thing in your mind, then what you actually come to inhabit is a state of deep humility. What Paul is describing here is a state of forgetfulness of the self. So Paul is saying, I don't care what food I might want. I will adapt myself so that my life poses no impediment to people hearing what really matters. I don't care what tastes I might have, what convictions I might have about certain things. I don't care about certain preferences that I might have. I don't care about certain agendas that I might have. All of these things, Paul says, I will forget them. I will lay them to the side so that there is nothing in my life, nothing in my speech, nothing in my conduct, Nothing in the way that I present myself to others that prevents people from hearing, from seeing in me the good news about Jesus. If there's one message that runs through the entirety of the Bible, it's this. We meet God when the idol of the self is laid aside. We meet God when we stop being preoccupied with ourselves. We meet God when we forget those things that we thought were more important than anything else in the world. We meet God when the idol of the self is put aside. What Paul is describing to us here is how that laying the idol of the self aside looks like in our relationships. I become all things to all people. I lay everything that is most offensive in Paul. I lay everything that is most offensive in Scott. I lay everything that could get in the way of people hearing and seeing the good news of Jesus Christ. Forgetting myself, I lay those things aside so that by any means people can see and hear Christ in me. There are a number of themes that Paul's been exploring in this letter. Christ is the power of God in weakness. 
Christ is the wisdom of God in foolishness. Christ is the richness of God in poverty. Christ is the glory of God in scandal. At every moment in each one of those descriptions, Christ is laying something aside so that all people might see and know the love of God. Christ lays aside the power of God. Christ lays aside the wisdom of God. Christ lays aside the richness of God. Christ lays aside the glory of God. So that through all things, in all ways, we might know God's love. I think in the end, when Paul says, in his freedom he makes himself a slave to everyone, what he is doing is translating into his own life this that he writes in another another letter. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be among you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to use for himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Amen.